Podcasting with Kerry Jones. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week's episode, I chat once more with Explorer and BBC presenter, Will Millard. Some of you will have heard my episode with him a couple of weeks ago, episode 97, where he chats about his fishing experiences. When he came up to the house to record the podcast, so many stories he was telling me, I had to record them. So this week, he tells us the experiences he had behind the scenes while filming two documentaries, A Year in the Tribe and Hunters of the South Seas, where he tells of the close escapes he's had, including the incredible story of when he was filming a whale hunt in New Guinea, plus some powerful words of how fishing helped him through some dark times with PTSD. And while completing the editing of this episode last week, Will actually caught a very special fish at the remote Loch Trigg at Rannoch Moor in Scotland. A magnificent wild ferox. I had to hear the story and took the opportunity to record our chat as I called him on the phone and add this at the start of this podcast. This is a special episode for me. I thoroughly enjoyed your chatting with him. And you'll be able to see why. And the stories he's got to tell will have you riveted to your seat. Sit back and enjoy my chat once more with Will Millard. Hello, mate. Hello, Will. How's it going? Good. Really good. Well... That's all yeah. I'm going to say to start this off is, wow. Oh. I wanted to hear about the story. I was going to ring you sooner. But I thought it'd be a good idea, while I'm listening to it, to actually record it. Yeah, definitely. So what happened then? Oh. I mean, it was just one of the most magical angling moments I've had. I mean, certainly in recent years. So I mean, I've, been, I've been working on this book. Um the way of the hermit about a man called Ken Smith who lives off grid in this really remote lock. In fact, it's called the lonely lock, lock trade up in the highlands of Scotland. And I've been visiting him since May this year. It's all through the summer and now coming into the autumn. And, um, he was a huge fisherman, a very, very skilled fisherman and has caught a lot of fish from that lock. Uh, so obviously I, I being an angler, even though I was having to carry everything that I needed on my back um, to spend the weeks with him, I thought, oh, God, I'll bring my rods. <laughs> so I packed yeah. a couple of rods. And, uh, yeah, out I went, really. And, um, I mean, I can remember that first trip just really kind of getting a gauge of the potential of the place. It's a, it's a, it's a big old lock. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, wedged in between these these two huge mountains, this kind of like deep glacial valley, real sort of ancient in feel. The loch itself is, is quite the size, is it? Yeah, it's about five and a half miles um, wow. from Dan Wall to Tip. 
So it is big and it's it's locked in on either side by a couple of real sort of long mountain ranges. Um, it's right up in the middle of the Rannoch Moors. It sits on an estate called Karawa, um, which is an old an old Scottish estate. You know, it's been passed down through kind of the MacDonald family for generations. It's now Lovely. being looked after by new owners. But the lock itself, it's just one of those kind of abyssal glacial sheets of water with enormous amounts of potential getting there is not easy which obviously if you're into your remote fishing is massively part of the charm of the place yeah. you can't actually drive um, because it is part of this private estate the only way you can get there is by train so what i tend to do is drive my car up to the train stop below the one that i've got to get to which is karawa and then i jump on the train with all my gear and um and and get off at Karawa train station and that train station actually if you're a fan of the film train spotting it appears in the film there's a bit in the film where they all pile out at this remote scottish train station and one of the lads oh, is like we're nice. going to climb that hill when they all sit down they're like no we're not no we're not and that is nice. literally his train station wow so then you sort of walk away and you can't see the lock at that point you, you walk away from the train station you walk through this sort of like big kind of boggy land and then it a track leads you down and then suddenly you see the lock start to open out in front of you. And where Ken Smith lives, the man who I'm working with and writing up his memoirs, he's just in this woodland about halfway down the lock. Yeah. He's got a cabin in there. He's been there for almost 40 years, living completely off grid. Hell wow. of a bloke and an amazing angler. Wow. Um, so yeah, I turned up there on the first trip and, and you know, he gets his fishing albums out and his fishing tackle and the pictures of his fish you know, through the years from this lock, uh, a jaw drop in. He holds the Lock Trade Ferox trout record. It's a 12 pounder. He caught on this like telescopic rod with a little MEP spinner. I saw the photo. Extraordinary picture. Yeah, I put it on my Facebook actually beneath the fish that, that I caught last week. Um, I saw it. Yeah. Just mind blowing, really. And you see something like that and you, oh, it's so inspiring. But, you know, he told me he was like absolutely adamant that there wasn't any big ferox left. You know, there was, if you were lucky, you might get a five pounder um, of occasion, effectively like environmental change, bug had gone through the trout population. You know, the kind of giants of the past were very much of the past. I think it was back in 1995 when he caught his record fish. So there's not many people would fish it. But still, no, I've never seen another angler, you know, I've never never met another angler up there. I've fished it three times now. You know, for done uh, two weeks, and then the first trip I was there for only a couple of days. Um, but I've never seen another angler. Barely. I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of people I've seen up there, let alone anglers. Yeah. So what's that's the... why it's called the Lonely Lock. It's so isolated, and 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 you know, you it's it's not just the ferox that are in there. There's pike, possibly to thirty pounds. There's eels. They've got a population of Arctic char. Um, it, it's an extraordinary place. You know, they've got otters, they've got uh, eagles, that's ospreys what, occasionally get seen down there. It's it's a real kind of land that time forgot. That's what they feed and, on then, those char, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, you know. And, and the kind of Hollywood couldn't design a better set for a hermit or a so-called hermit to go and live in, you know. Brilliant. And that's where he is. And then there's one other bloke, another hermit, <laughs> at the north end of the lock. Uh, who's uh, who's in a tent, and he's also an angler. It's kind of funny, you know. You've got these two guys living together on this one lonely lock. Wow. Um, 
So I went down for that trip one and obviously got massively inspired. And then the second trip I went and I started fishing it, you know, whenever I had a break from the writing and interviewing Ken about his life. And he got me fishing these couple of bays that were about a mile up from where his cabin was, where a small burn flows in. And I had some success, you know, just a, just a few trout, real sort of dark trout, you know, in the kind of one pound class, nothing to write home about, but nice fish nonetheless to catch. Um, Were you fishing the fillet then, and then for these? I wasn't actually. No, I was fishing spinners, yeah. um, mostly because I was I was trying to kind of go for a bigger fish, and he, he you know he'd really warned me that you know you need to kind of fish quite heavy tackle for them, and he'd he'd yeah. only ever really fished spinners, so that was pretty much yeah, yeah. the way forward. I'd love to go and fly fish down there, and I've read on a few forums that people have, um, you know, and I've, but you, again, you never. No one ever really seemed to write home about it. There was nothing, yeah. nothing sensational, you know, put it that way. Um, so, yeah, I fished it, had a little bit of success, got an almighty bollocking off Ken because he was like, what the hell is that green crap on your on your, on your your reel? I was fishing with Bray. All right. Um, he'd never seen Bray before, and he was like, it's £10 maxima up here, nothing else. Definitely. Fish can see that, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had a fluorocarbon leader and, you know, all the kind of like modern, I, I mean, I use modern in inverted commas now because it's been fished like that for years. Um, you know, braid, fluorocarbon leader through to a through to a spinner or small lures or um, jig heads, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and he's going mad about, about my braid. He went mad about the clips that I was using. He was like, you know, if a fish jumps, it would just take, take your lure straight off the clip and, I tried to explain why I used braid, but it all fell on deaf ears. He just looked at me like I was mad and then was basically like, don't bring that stuff here again. <laughs> so I, didn't, I took my reel away. <laughs> and then the next trip, the most recent one, I came back and um, yeah, I'd done what he told me to do. You know, of course I did. And the fishing was really hard. It was really bright conditions last week. And I fished one day back up in those bays again and, and didn't see a fish didn't raise a fish which was quite unusual because there was a lot of fish around on the last trip you know, so, felt, so you're obviously fishing good. the bank yeah, yeah yeah fishing from the bank um, and yeah I mean it's just bright and I told Ken I was like oh you know it doesn't, it doesn't feel very good and, and he's always says to me he's like the more violent the weather the more violent the takes yeah, you know he's like when he was fishing it if it wasn't at the very least drizzling with a bit of chop then he wouldn't even leave the house. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, me too. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, predators have got incredibly sensitive eyes, and and then it's a kind of a mythology where people feel, you know, if you're going to go and fish a place that's relatively untapped where fish haven't seen a hook, that it's somehow going to be easier, and that's not the case at all, you know. Yeah. Um. So I fished with. I fished, I fished that day in court so then I said look I, I think given the, the set for better weather coming I'll just get up at dawn the next day so I did actually it wasn't quite up at dawn we had a bit of a funny moment the night before so that night so Ken brews all his own booze you know and he drinks a lot and expects you to drink a lot whilst you're there <laughs> and uh, I was trying to record this piece with him about about his wines and his brew. And I'd, I'd written this whole piece about birch sap wine, which is one of his favorites. Oh, and I mentioned I'd never tried it. And his, and his eyes lit up and he was like, birch sap wine, ice, beautiful nectar from heaven. Jumps over to his huge booze collection and picks up this 
bottle off the ground, hands it over to me, and I had to use a pair of pliers to carry to get the get the cork out of this bottle. Never. I was looking at it, I was like, oh, it looks weird. It was kind of like orange and kind of glowing a little bit. It wasn't what I'd sort of seen birch sap look like, but I put some in my glass and tried it. And immediately, like, my throat was just on fire. I was like, oh, this tastes rough, man. It, you know, it didn't taste, it tastes fruity, but not how I'd imagine birch sap to be. But I was like, oh, this must be just what it is, you know? Yeah. And then he said, oh, come on, give me a swig. And he took a swig and he went, Aah! He's like, what the hell is this? He's like, my throat's on fire. And obviously, I was then like, oh my God, what has he done? And he looks at the bottom and he suddenly, his whole face is just contorted with fear. And he, and he turns to me and he said, this bottle, this bottle was dropped off by some lone hiker that came through and he just left it here. I never, ever meant to drink this. And he said, look at it. And, and then we looked at it under the light of the fire because he's got no electricity. It had all these like blobs floating in it. It looked absolutely disgusting. Oh, and then no, that was it. No. He, he was like, Will, we're going to die. We're going to die. He's poisoned us. <laughs> it's probably got anthrax in it. And then he started telling me, he was like, you know, serum from foxgloves, you can put that in drink and it disguises it completely. We'll have organ failure in two days. I was like, <laughs> oh, come <Ken> on. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is as well when you're in the that environment I guess you, you think shit this is oh, what's happening yeah. I did I thought what are we going to do I was like I can't there's no way of you know it's it's, it's it's 10 miles to walk to the nearest road let alone get an ambulance yeah. so I'm then shoving my fingers down my throat trying to vomit this stuff up <laughs> Ken, Ken Ken turns around to me <laughs> Ken turns around to me and he's like my bowels have gone my bowels have gone he runs outside <laughs> drops his neck <laughs> after an hour nothing happened and i said ken i think we, i think we might have i think we might have panicked <laughs> yeah and he's like oh yeah maybe and then he asked so he went to bed and they so i didn't quite get up at dawn the next day and everything was fine you know i woke up the next day and i did not die but that was the kind of backdrop to the day of yeah. the fish and um so I went out dawn and I fished the two bays again. And by that point, I was fairly sure that the fish just weren't in that area and that I was flogging a dead horse continuing. So kind of went back to Ken, sorted out. We always sort out his log pile in sort of mid-morning, um, go out and chop the trees and stuff and, um, and make sure he's sorted for the day. And then after that, um, you know, he wanted to have a little rest, probably for all the questions. So I decided to go for a walk to the, the head of the lock and sort of look at a few other areas. And the two spots that really spoke to me, as they would any angler, was where the Rath River comes in and feeds the lock. Yeah. It's just this kind of like really good, really oxygenated, big gorge area, wide as well, you know, oh, and the, right. the water level was well down, but sort of 25, 30 meters across, maybe, and deep, like properly deep, you know, I mean, I would say. 15, 20 foot in places in the middle where I was dropping my lure down. Nice. So I fished it through, saw nothing, caught nothing. I went upstream and then wished I'd brought a trout rod because there was some really lovely looking trout just in the kind of smaller pools that were taking flies off the surface. So was this early in the morning though? This now is in the afternoon. um, Which I took to be a good sign, but still the conditions weren't right. It was very bright overhead. So I had a little bit of a walk, took some pictures, um, bumped into a couple of Belgian hikers, um, had a nice chat with them, and then walked back and retrieved my rods that I sort of stashed in the heather. 
And you know, as an angler, when uh, you can just feel like a yeah. switch has been flicked. You know, the sun just dipped behind the Munros opposite and it just felt very different in the lock for the first yeah. time that it had done all week. And I was like, now's the time. And Ken had told me about this spot where you had to walk through this sort of ancient sheepfold made out of stones, you know, this dividing area where the farmers used to divide up their sheep. And I walked right through the middle of that and and down the bank. And as I say, the lock was very, very low, you know, after the drought. And I came down onto this sandbank. It was like white sand. It was almost like Thailand, like how fine the sand was. It was real sort of like powder sand. Yeah. in this area that was being fed by another burn. It's a really, really good, really good looking spot. You know, it just, it just looked on. So I had a couple of rods with me, you know, I had my sort of light spinning outfit and then I had a heavier, a heavier rod that I was sort of holding back for the pike and I cast out the light spinner and it was pretty much the fourth or fifth cast and I felt this almighty smack on the line and I struck perfectly and I, and I could feel the fish on and up, you know, I almost like let out a little cheer. <laughs> you know, it had been a long time. Yeah. And then it dropped the hooks and it, oh, I couldn't believe it. I was just, it felt like it was absolutely nailed on and I reeled up. I couldn't work out what, what had happened. And, you know, as an angler when you've lost a good fish and I went through all of the kind of stages of grief where uh, you're in denial that it was a good fish yeah. then you kind of acceptance it was a good fish and then i was absolutely just devastated gutted knew that was it that was my chance were you thinking i kind of knew i wasn't going to get another opportunity that week as well you know were you thinking um, pike at the time at that time honestly i thought big trout at that particular time right. you know it was like a big violent head shake but i had no yeah. reason to think that it was pike it didn't feel like a very pikey area like the water that was pushing through there was pushing through quite fast in terms of like yeah. the burn that was feeding it. it was dropping from quite a height so i wasn't thinking pike at the time but i definitely was when i recast the heavier rod so i then put on a on a replicant you know and it was a big sort of six inch replica trout right lure and i'd, I'd kind of fished the river mouth out by that point um where the where this burn was feeding this little area and again, exactly the same place, you know, and I'm fishing with like, by this point, like a six foot, three pound test curve rod with 15 pound line, you know, beefed up pike gear with a proper thick trace on, putting it back through that area, bang, same take as before, absolutely solid and struck in. And it did that thing with the big pike do when they just hold their ground. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, a screaming run it, it didn't go mad it was just that kind of doggedly determined resistance at depth yeah and because i was only fishing with a six foot rod and you know, i kind of needed to kind of get a little bit of elevation to get a bit bit of that pressure and angle on the fish it's quite difficult even with a stiff rod nice. when it's only six foot long yeah. to actually move a fish so I kind of went up the sandbank a little bit and kind of kept up the pressure on this fish and, and kind of got it moving. It started swimming up towards the mouth of the burn um, into the kind of choppier water, um, which I was quite surprised about. I was expecting it to just turn around and head for the lock, but it didn't. Um, I didn't get a look at the fish until I landed it. I really wasn't fighting it for that long. Um, 
lifted it up, like came in up through the kind of shallow sandbar. And then I was absolutely convinced it was going to be a pike. You know, everything about it said big pike. And mm. then it just swelled on the surface in the total sort of gin clear water. And, and I could see this oh. incredibly wild, almost black fish. The head on it was the first thing I saw and it had a head like a sheep and the kipe was unreal. Like I've just, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I, I caught that 13 pound brownie in Chew Valley, but this was something else. I've never had a ferox before, you know, and we've yeah. spoken about it, Kerry. Yeah, they're a different breed of fish, but oh, yeah. it isn't until you're kneeling in the water with one in your arms, you actually realize what you mean when you say that, yeah. you know, dark, like dark and, bristling with dark intentions as well you know you know you're holding something that is truly wild in both senses of the word you know yeah. a real beast wow. didn't have a net i was lucky with the gradient of the yeah. um of the of the river mouth really lucky you know it came up very sympathetically in terms of the slope you know if it had been a, a steep slope i would have not got that fish in Okay. Especially if it was barely hooked. Yeah. I mean, there was no wonder once I had the fish why, even though I'd struck perfectly well, the initial bite hadn't gone into its jaws. Yeah, so solid, so solid. You know, but the treble hook was pricked into its mouth. It it literally fell out as I lifted it up. Um, so what did you do? You know, you so measure, yeah, no, no. Did, did you measure it? I guess you didn't have a scales or anything then, did you? No scales, no. I mean, this was it. Because obviously, as I said, you know, I have to carry everything I need to um, to live with Ken on my back. So that's all my food, it's all my camping equipment, it's all my sleeping equipment, and then all my recording equipment, my laptop, you know, my my um, tape recorders, everything to do my job to write this book. So absolutely no extras. You know, fishing rod already is a luxury, let alone all of the other stuff. You yeah. know, so beyond your kind of lures and your fish care kit didn't have anything else so yeah i beached the fish um held it in the river mouth you know let it recover and then i mean by this point obviously i think you don't care do you i was completely soaked you know i was in the water yeah. uh, you can see from the photo um and i measured it against against my rod Great um, and, and took, took yes i mean just i mean again pure luck you know put the phone balance my phone on a on a rock, I didn't even realise that how well the framing was behind me in terms of you know the mountains, and you can see the sunbeam yeah. bursting out from behind my back. I mean, I'm breaking all the rules in that picture, you know, silhouetted completely. Like, but it just looks awesome, you oh, know. Yeah. So yeah, measured it against my rod, and then I took that one picture, let it recover, and I'm back. She went, and that was it, you know. So what was the length and the weight? Do you estimate? It was 27 inches. Um, so obviously took the picture and that information back to Ken and he said eight pound. I don't think, I don't think it was personally. I think it was probably seven to be fair. Like it had a huge head, um, but it didn't, it didn't feel like it had the frame. If that makes, I think if it, it was one of those fish that if it, if it was kind of full frame, it probably would have been a scraper double I think eight, eight is kind of fair, but I feel in my heart it was probably like seven, you know? That's but a special whatever. fish for a lake like that, though. Yeah, it? exactly. I mean, it's the biggest 
one that's been caught out of there in years. You know, Ken's PB out of that lock was six pounds for 10, 15 years. And he was fishing it nearly every day. And then he just went into this run where he caught six and a half pounder, seven pounder, an eight pounder. And then the, 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 the lock record is 12 pounder all back in back to back days, all from that same bay. I might add, I caught it from the same place he caught his record. Um, you know, but since then, there's just not been any big fish coming. But then, on the other hand, it's not fished. If no one fishes it, you know, yeah. If no one's fishing it, then no one's going to catch, are they? So, you know. So you'd be going back up there again, then? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm back up in three weeks. So I've got to read him his conclusion of his book because obviously Ken being off grid, no phone, no internet, no post. We get his letters every three weeks, but I can't post a book, so. Right. <laughs> even if I've got like some little trivial thing I have to check I have to get in the car 1200 mile round trip so get how, the train so you how know, does he know seven, you, you've just got to tell him you just got to tell him like a day right I'll be here on this day you can't just say yeah. I'll be there tomorrow or whatever because he won't know we'll just be no expect you so I, I write him I, I had to cancel a, the trip before last and I wrote him a letter and just have to hope he got it but yeah just give him my dates and you have to stick to it you know wow it's kind of cool. It's like old school, right? I mean, like I remember being kid, kid growing up in the eighties and the fens, and that was how it was. You know, it was like meet you at the bridge two o'clock tomorrow, and you had to be there no matter what because there was yeah. no way of getting a message out to your mates. You know, it's kind of like that, but on a on a mega scale, really. And what did he say when you went back? It was really cool, actually. I was so excited to to show him. Um, you know, and I felt really proud because he doesn't fish anymore. You know, he's quite infirm. Um, I always felt pressure when I did go out to fish because I felt like his expectations and hopes were always traveling with me. And, you know, I always felt like I'd let him down a little bit when I'd come back having not caught anything, you know, which is silly really, but that is how I felt. And he would always kind of, you know, gently admonish me over my gear and things if he felt like I was doing it wrong, which invariably I was. Um, so yeah, I kind of came back and, and I said, I've, I've had one, I've had a good one. Um, and I showed him the picture, and he just, he just, he just <laughs> shouted, "Oh my god, it's a trout!" Whoa. You know, and and he was thrilled, and he was like, "You've got to tell your friends, you know, you've got to tell them about what you caught." And you know, I said, "Oh, they'll want to come down." Kenny was like, "Well, they're welcome," you know, and he was really, really pleased, really pleased for me, and it was really, it was really lovely to share that moment. It was. Did he get one of his one of the best moments then? we've had? Well, actually, as luck would have it, I'd been stashing my gear so I didn't have to carry so much in in his kind of guest cabin, as it were, which is like a little lob shed he's got out of the back. And um, I knew I was leaving the next morning, so I sort of went into one of my old dry bags and I found a hip flask of 12-year-old Redbreast, you know, the Irish whiskey uh, that my dad had given us. And it was full. And so, yeah, it was like the second massive stroke of luck Wow, and I went back in, and we split it and and toasted the fish as good elf, really, and and that was it. It was it was beautiful, man. Oh, that sounds just a dream. The old story, the romance, I can imagine. I love the thought you can't just drive and park there. That you got to catch a train and then you got to walk. That's my sort of wild. That is, I love oh, the idea of that. It's so romantic. It's so romantic, and it's kind of everything you hope it would be as well. Yeah. You know, which is nice because I don't feel like, you know, a lot of kind of 
you know, in this kind of like Instagram, social media world, you kind of feel like a lot of the background noise is framed out when people take their pictures or write their reports. You know, they amp up the romanticism of a place because yeah. they want to believe in this idea of a, of a of a wilderness location. But when you go there and you make the effort, you really feel it, you know. If you would like to experience one of my guided or instruction days, feel free to message me or take a look at my tuition and guiding page on my website, castingwithkerryjones.com. Plus, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to listen to more, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash castingwithkerryjones. And now, sit back and listen to my chat as well join me in my home and did the recording in my studio. It's absolute horror show. You know, when we've been filming stuff and there's been moments where you get to like a peak sequence, you're like, this is the one, one shot. It's either on the, on the film or it's not. And you know, the kind of top cameraman directors I've worked with have always said, don't worry about the pictures, make sure it's recording and you're getting sound. And there's been so many times, Kerry, when like something, you know, extraordinary has happened and I've just been thinking, I hope I haven't double tapped that button. You know, when yeah. you're so, you're so like, and now record. And it's like the, almost like the adrenaline causes you to almost yeah. do like a muscular twitch that you double tap, you record and it goes on and then off. The stomach turns over. Yeah. Like, it? And like, you know, when you're, when you're like self shooting something, so that, so the action is in, unfolding in front of you and you're shooting from the hip, like, you know, with your camera, and your pre- your camera's by your hip and you're presenting at the same time, you can't look down to check your shot. For example, when we filmed uh, My Year with the Tribe and I went, so um, on the first trip out there, we'd been sort of commissioned by the BBC to go and live with this tribal people that ostensibly at the time we believed that they lived in these 40 metre high tree houses. Now, that all turned out to be a fabrication, which was a huge can of worms. We then carried on going deeper and deeper into the forest and we were told about these two brothers, elderly brothers, that still lived in a traditional way in a reasonable sized tree house um, out in uh, out in the jungle. Now, you know, the, the, traditionally the coral I actually only live in tree houses of like five to ten metres high. Like these giants had been a construct of tourism and television and it had all got completely gross and blown out of proportion. But... Anyway, that's that's by the by, and so we, we'd kind of walk down this path to go and to meet these brothers and to talk to them about their lives. And as we were approaching their treehouse, I suddenly realised, having spent so many years in Papua before then, anyway, I was like, "You just know, mate. Like, you just get this kind of like tingling sense. You know, we're making our way through this rainforest, thick forest, tiny, tiny little pig path in the mud. We'd already walked through a flooded swamp." And I came around the corner and suddenly this treehouse was there and wow. Hollywood could not have commissioned a better Korowai treehouse than this. It was built around this old hardwood tree. It was kind of leaning to one side. There was roots coming out the bottom of it, actual leaves and foliage growing out the top. Wildlife was just transiting through it. It was as as one in the forest. It, the, the inside of it, the actual eaves of the roof you know, which was made out of banana leaves, was 
all animal skulls of every single species of marsupial mammal and bird in the forest and then there's these two elderly man men sat there and uh yeah i can remember approaching and i've got my camera out and i was pointing it towards the treehouse and obviously you've got to capture the whole of the sequence from beginning the middle the end and i started recording i hit record and that i remember just thinking then like the whole time they were talking and i can speak a bit of i could speak a bit of korowai like a few words and i speak fairly what? fluent indonesian and and the conversation had already started. And Why I was, would you shoot from the hip then? Why do you only pull it up? It's, you feel safer. I, I, it's not that I feel safer. It's just, it's it's purely etiquette. I don't want to put my camera over my face when yeah. I'm meeting people for the first time. You know, because you know, I'm already doorstepping these people. I yeah. haven't told them I'm coming, you know. So I just record from the hip. It's a beautiful sequence. It was lovely. They were, they were, they became really close with them over the course of that year and ended up living with them. Um, phenomenal anglers by the way and uh yeah but i can remember then i was like i knew that that was going to go into this big bbc2 series that we were making i knew that every second of what i was shooting was going to be in the film and i can just remember thinking tell me it was on record yeah the whole time i was talking to them i was like please 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 and even after i'd kind of finished and i knew it was on record i was still kind of panicking about the sound and things and it wasn't until kind of the director watched it back later and was like yeah, thumbs up. That's absolutely great. That I, Brilliant. That I relaxed. But yeah, no, it's. Um, I can imagine you were describing that then. It, it would have been like the scene of a film, and with the sound as well of what's going on in the jungle. I can imagine. Oh. You see, I was told once by a, he's a, a film cameraman in Ireland actually, and he was saying, you actually see with your ears, and it transforms everything. The sound, the whole feel of something with with the totally. audio absolutely it's um it's an incredible incredible experience you know and it's not just it's your ears are really important like what you can hear especially when you're living in a in a tree house in um in a coralway jungle you know these people are it's a mar- they live on the margins of of, of even papuan society the coralway do you know i'd spent a lot of time with a lot of different tribes in new guinea and all of them that I'd lived with up until that point had a better life than the Korowai. You know, they yeah. had they had uh, good gardens. They had, you know, a lot of them were, were had animal husbandry on the go. They were breeding pigs. Uh, the Korowai had none of that. They were effectively hunter-gatherers still, apart from the ones which was the overwhelming majority of Korowai that had left the forest behind because it was too hard and had moved into villages on the riverbanks, but these yeah. two guys were sticking it out. And um, because of the calorie deficiency in their diet anyway, they're not going to waste time going out to hunt or fish at a time when it isn't optimum to do so. So their senses are really important in informing them when there is food close to where they live. And only then are they going to pick up their bow and arrow or go and get their fishing line and some rods and spears and go out and do it. They're not going to waste any time. Yeah fishing or hunting when it isn't optimal so they listen to the forest and they can hear the different animals coming in and they know when they're close but the other thing that they do they can feel the pressure changes in the air yeah and after you've spent like a month there you can feel it yourself like you can feel like it's weird it's it's almost like you know that the jungle can be very suffocating because it's so humid but then there'll almost be these kind of like pockets of pressure when you feel it lift a bit like when you well in fact it's exactly like when you're fishing you know when you're out on some big lake you can suddenly feel that 
that lifting pressure and you know that the fish are going to be coming off the bottom or doing whatever they're doing coming out of the marginal snags or you know to feed and it's the same with the animals and as soon yeah. as they feel that lift along with the audio clues they're like it's go time and when it's time to hunt it's like I can hear the passion in your voice oh, now. I can imagine there's like an obsession that's, oh. that's almost like a second home for you the jungle yeah it was for a while I mean I I've probably spent, I think, about three and a half years living in rainforests um, in New Guinea and in Indonesia and in West Africa. And I just think they're the most incredible environment on earth. You know, when you're stood in a in a forest, you know, a proper, pristine primary rainforest, you can see a complete ecosystem in a way that you can't see in other places, yeah. you know. And I that, suppose you had really a chance special. to fish when you were there. Yeah, I've fished. I mean, I've always fished. Whenever I've gone anywhere, I've always fished. Yeah. And the coral way was really interesting. You know, like I did, um, uh, was it the second or the third time I went and stayed with the brothers? The camera crew left me there uh, because we wanted me to sort of self-film and, and properly immerse myself. We had a lot of trouble with um, one of the local villages and, and you know, the, we, we realised that actually they weren't interested in us per se. They were interested in our stuff and getting money from us and actually when we kind of moved the circus so to speak which was like the production crew and all of our gear out of the forest and back down into their village i was left completely alone so i was able to kind of stay there and film with them and yeah and and live live alongside them and i remember this this week it was probably the worst rain i've ever had in papua it was absolutely relentless 24 hours a day just non-stop rain there was a river uh, which was about three hours. A bit like the Ronda then. A bit like the Ronda, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a river about three hours walk away, which was the river where they did all of their fishing and it burst its banks and the forest flooded and, you know, they said, there's no point trying to fish. You'll never, you'll never get catch fish. You know, they're all in the woods. Um, but we were so hungry because we weren't able to go out and hunt. You know, we we, we lived off sago grubs. So the kind of big oh, maggoty. I've seen them, yeah. Yeah, it's quite funny because you is watch that, it on... Uh, is that what they see on uh, the jungle? Celebrity. Yeah. See, oh. I watch it on that and I'm like, come on. Like, literally, mate. We ate kilos and kilos and kilos of it. It's like as big as your thumb or something, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. You just bite in half and you're like, yeah. all this gunk comes yeah, out of it. like custard explodes in your mouth. Oh. No, honestly, not that bad. They're honestly not. It's fine. Oh. Once you get used to it... You, you don't cook them. You have them raw, do you? Um, it varies. I, I just ate them raw. Uh, most of the time because they weren't that much better cooked um what they used to do they'd have these sort of fire pits and they'd wrap they would they'd cook hot stones in the fire they'd get loads of bamboo leaves and they'd wrap um whatever meat we had whether it was sago grubs which it mostly was or spiders or lizards snakes and you'd wrap them up with the hot rocks within these uh, bamboo uh, leaves and then you put it back on the fire and it made almost like an oven and then you'd have these oven baked insects but they used to eat them a lot with this stuff called uh, papeda which i absolutely despised which was this like sago palm pith that they rubbed down into this glue seriously carry it was like eating snot uh, so that was the other reason why i tended to eat my insects raw was because i didn't want it to be mixed in this papeda bread that was either this snot substance or do you ever do the Jacob's Cream Cracker Challenge where you have to like try and eat like four or five Jacob's Cream Crackers yeah, without having a drink? You'd think it'd be easy, wouldn't it? But it's not. It's just, your mouth goes dry, doesn't it? It was like that. It was literally it was, uh, like eating the Sahara and I, it's got insects in. I was like, nah. I can imagine if like, you chose to go on to or ever get on to uh, 
I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. It'd be like a walk in the park for you then. Oh, mate. I mean, in terms of eating stuff, there's not a lot I haven't. But took the trials. You could. You could yeah. just easily do it. Like the worst things. The worst things I've ever eaten though are um, bats and tarantulas. Like bats. These bats that we were eating in New Guinea in this swamp down on the Papua New Guinea border. It was like, it was like eating burnt piss. Like that was what it tasted of. It was disgusting. And then there was these tarantulas when I was in Cambodia, and oh, I don't know whether it was eggs or excrement in their abdomens, but it was not good. Really? But most of the stuff that you think would be nasty is actually not that bad. Eating insects isn't as bad as you think once you've got over the trick in your head. But anyway, we'd been we'd been out there. We hadn't even been able to get sago grubs because of the rain. We were getting really, really desperately hungry. And I, I remember just turning to my mate, um, who, who was acting as my translator. He was another... Korowai lad but he spoke Indonesian and I could speak Indonesian so I could talk to the brothers through him and I was like look I don't care let's just go and fish let's just go because yeah. I'd rather have a chance of catching a fish even though it's going to cost me more calories than the fish is going to get me oh, just to taste a fish man like when you're really really hungry yeah you know we'd gone what what fish were they then so there was loads of different species in these rivers uh. you get like big tilapia um, which is almost like a plate-shaped fish uh, with kind of like quite long tendrils that come off um, the bottom of uh, of its uh, stomach. We've got snakeheads. We used to lamp them out. You'd go out and um, you'd get a torch at night. Oh, snakeheads. Snakeheads. So it's, it's got a head like a snake, really big teeth, and then a long, dark body. It's like a it's like an eel shape. Um, I mean, quite pretty patterns, actually, blacks and whites. And um, uh, you, you'll often see... Um, all the fry around the adult as well. They, they tend to stick stick oh, very right, close, yeah. which is quite interesting. Um, so you'd lamp them out. And then, um, yeah, but this day uh, we were after catfish and that was the big, that's what you wanted. Like they were by far and away the best fish to catch because they had so much meat. Although having said that, there were some big tilapia. Like you sometimes you could catch tilapia up to like seven or eight pounds in exceptional circumstances. Crayfish as well, but we're talking pap oh, crayfish here. So I the love size crayfish. of lobsters, man, like beautiful so yeah. nice um and the way they used to do it to catch the catfish is uh they actually had some nylon um nylon lines in the past they'd just have to use bows fluorocarbon or monofilament <laughs> <laughs> it was mono actually and it was quite funny because like obviously i took over a bit of gear um i'd been been down to my mates gary evans in cardiff and i'd like picked up all my cat links and stuff you know like the thick braid and everything and uh, and i and i dropped it all off and they were so polite and oh thank you thank you so much and then obviously the next time i went they weren't using any of it they were just like this stuff's a load of rubbish like really? this guy no yeah you know i mean because obviously we're sport anglers you know yeah. so our our tackle ostensibly is designed for sport to give fish a sporting chance they don't want to give this fish a sporting chance. They want to guarantee they can get it on the back. They don't use the rods either. No. So what they did was they would they would get they would so the jackpot scenario would be to catch a smaller catfish of say like three to five pounds that you would then use as a two piece dead bait with almost like rope thick nylon or actual rope. And what they would do is um, they would set the lines to trees, but they would find very specific branches which had just enough suppleness in them to be able to play a fish without anyone needing to be there but obviously not so supple that they'd break they'd hook these uh they'd hook they'd hook the, hook the fish on and then drop them in 
drop them into these pools and then come back and catch. And, the, and some of the catfish, I mean, probably the biggest one I saw was about 30 pounds and it was full of eggs. So they were thrilled. Yeah. So, I mean, they're eating all the eggs. They eat obviously every part of the catfish, all the bones, they eat everything. There's bones as well? Left. Bones as well. Nothing left. They did that with most of the animals, actually. I mean, they only ever saw, like, they only ever seemed to keep the skulls as a trophy. But they would eat the bones. You know, even when we're catching, mm. like, tree kangaroos and couscous, which is a type of uh, nocturnal marsupial, uh, sugar gliders, you know, all of these. They would eat everything. You know? I, I had a chance once, um, well, not a chance, it was all booked, I was ready to go, um, to fish the Amazon for peacock bass. Oh. Uh, that was... Uh, Brazil, I think that was, wasn't it? That's it, yeah. yeah. And um, my father was ill at the time, and uh, I can't, I didn't go. But uh, the trip itself looked amazing. You know, they would just take you up the Amazon for a couple of miles and put you in this, like a, a lodge where it was on stilts on the rainforest, like, you know, well, in the jungle. And uh, But it's something I'd, I, I maybe one day, you never know. Maybe well, if, you, go if you ever want to come to the Korowai, I'd more than happily take you out there but it is it t- takes a week to get there is it? door to door it's full on you know um but yeah anyway we were we were like starving in the forest and we decided we were going to go and uh hope and halap the two brothers was laughing at us they were like you're wasting your time and we went and set our deadlines i actually had a uh a halibut pellet that i bought in cardiff you know the big catfish halibut pellet oh, yeah. pre-drilled and um i set that up on my deadline my mate used a big locust and uh first couple of days we didn't catch anything and i think it was the third day we went back and we both caught catfish each and it was oh it was one of the greatest like fishing moments of my life you know to just to just to bring this fish in when you're so desperately hungry and 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 also to be able to take it back to these two men who we loved so dearly and to have actually provided something for them that all this experience you were telling me about that was for filming my year with the tribe is it yeah that's right, yeah. How did that come about then? Is it just something you said, right, I want to do? Did you pitch it to a production company or how did you come about? Oh, it's a little a little bit of a convoluted story, really. I mean, I'll, I'll try and tell the, the short version, but like effectively, basically what happened, I mean, this is it's a bit of a mad story. Like I grew up in a really small sheltered village in the Fens in England. I actually had no desire to travel whatsoever. I, I fished every day and I remember when I turned sort of like seven or eight years old I said to my mum I was like I never want to leave this village like I've got everything I could ever need here so happy you know and then I remember actually like someone came in and just like talked to us about having kind of been abroad um and she'd worked in a school in Africa and I just couldn't believe that someone could go and do something like that And and I just really sort of became quite curious about the world really in a way that I never had been before I'd always been quite intimidated by by travel to be honest um so I left school at 18 went into the factories and then basically saved up my money and traveled for the first time and that was it I just got the bug but unlike other people that get the bug and end up kind of going to quite you know like there's a, there, there is a backpacking circuit that people tend to do and it is sort of like Australia Southeast Asia India you know, the main kind of big hotspot sites in South America, I basically became quite obsessed with Indonesia and the rainforests of Indonesia. And I just kept going further and further and further and pushing myself more and more and more and more. Um, And and my whole life became really about exploring those rainforests, really, and trying to understand how, how that ecosystem ticked and how the people that lived there worked. So 
that became my life through my 20s and I would I kind of fund myself by working my way up through the rungs in television and then go on these expeditions and I lived in Papua for a while I was an English language teacher there that was when I learned the languages and I learned about these intertribal trade routes this huge kind of on foot networks uh, that that went through this like impossibly large forest you know this kind of like natural crucible like New Guinea is mad it's the third largest island in the world you've got the highest mountain range between the Indo- in between the Himalayas and the Andes splitting the spine of this island one side of that spine is the biggest swamp in Asia and it's got the most intact primary rainforest left in Southeast Asia the people that live there not only were they cut off from the world in many cases they were cut off from tribes that lived in neighboring valleys so there's this incredible profusion of languages there they've got more dialects than anywhere else a quarter of the world's languages alone are spoken in new guinea i became fascinated by this place so i started leading expeditions over there building up my experience and building a bit of a name for myself and i just yeah i just fell deeply in love with with going on these remote expeditions and at the same time, whilst I'm kind of working my way up through the rungs in television, effectively, I got to the point where I was like, I need to bring these two things together and start working on anthropology television. And there were two places. So you've done some TV before? So I was doing like Children in Need and like Comic Relief and stuff and, you know, being a T-boy and then kind of got my first jobs as a researcher, as a camera assistant. I used to want to be a cameraman. And then eventually I brought my two worlds together. There were two companies in the country at the time that were doing anthropology television. One was in London, one was in Cardiff and I came to Wales. And then I left that job because I got sort of like my biggest expedition grant of my life at the time. And I ended up attempting to cross West Papua on foot. Um, walk the entire width of this huge jungle island on what I believed were the long lost last intertribal trade routes you know the longest running trade routes in human history and I think kind of like taking that step up into what was a very extreme expedition um you know I, I it changed my life really and it and it kind of it broke me but it also made my mark if that makes sense when I came back from that my friends who I'd been working with the production company in Cardiff had actually already pitched me as a presenter to BBC two. I didn't know that at the time. Um, I'd actually just got back from another expedition that I'd done in Sierra Leone, making this first solo descent of a river that splits the Sierra Leone Liberia border. And that had also been a tough expedition. And I kind of come back from that and I was like, I can't really, I don't, I I got cerebral malaria on that project in the Papuan one. I got lost in the 400 square mile uninhabited forest and nearly starved to death. And I kind of crawled really? out the forest. Yeah, crawled out the forest. And I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't, I'm going to die, you know. And then they were like, well, you're going to have to do it because we've got a commission. Result. And it was a big commission. Yeah, and it was amazing, you know. And it was it was so cool because I was with my really closest friends and and we had this big commission from BBC Two. You know, they had this Sunday night 9pm anthropology slot. You know, there was only one. You know, and, and, and I was that guy. They took a huge punt on me at the time. Were you working in a pub or something as well? Were you at that time? No, I wasn't at that time. Um, that was after I left university. I was a, I, I helped my friend manage a pub in Leeds. Um, oh, so right. I did that as well. When I was, I was, at that point, I was trying to get into journalism, print journalism. Right. But I just got rejected, you know, and um, uh, I literally remember like pulling pints one day and just thought, oh, well, television's a thing. You know, so I put an application in for work experience at the BBC and never looked back, really. 
But anyway, so the first series I worked on was called Hunters of the South Seas. And I went and spent three months, a month at a time, living with three different groups of people in this area of the South Pacific called the Coral Triangle. And they were three groups of people that have a closer relationship with water than anyone else. The first was the Bajau, the so-called sea gypsies that spend their entire life at sea. They're the most formidable, incredible spear hunters. Um, you know, they can hold their breath for five minutes under the water at 30 metres. And I lived with them. And I went and lived with the So they, they lived on islands? They lived in stilt houses that they constructed wow. over the top of coral atolls. Um, so there was a whole village called San Pella. I think it was about a thousand people there. Um, and the whole thing was suspended over the sea. So you'd go for a crap in the morning and, yeah, you know, you're... It's over the sea, you know, everything's yeah. over the sea. So no one ever swam between like six, <laughs> six and seven AM and then everyone would get in and you know, when it was when it was low tide, you'd go out onto the reefs and you'd hunt octopus and you'd gather shells, any sort of mollusks, crustaceans, seaweeds. Um, so how many would would it be a team of you to do it? With well, it was cameraman and yeah, sound and, and, and yourself? At that point there was only four of us. So it was me presenting and self filming. There was a director producer who was one person who also self-shot and did the sound. There was a local producer who's a, one of my best friends now called Shinta, and she came with me on all of my Indonesia programs. Absolutely incredible woman um, who lives in Bali. And um, and then just an assistant producer as well, just to kind of keep us all ticking over and watch our backs, really, while, yeah. you know, make sure we didn't lose any gear. So and then you, obviously you would commandeer you pr- local people as well. You know, you, you'd bring them into the team and you'd all work together as one team, really. How do you organise something like that? It's not as if there's a package deal, is it? You just sort of think, right, <laughs> you know, you think, right, do, do you think, right, we're going to have to take food with us? Or you'd speak to them before, so look, we're coming here for a month, you know, we're going to have to eat with you. Well, in the first instance, when we did Hunters of the South Seas, um, we had a recce. So the assistant producer went out and he went to various different locations and figured out where the best people, the best characters and the best stories were. And then obviously they figured out the logistics as well. So, you know, we knew what to take with us before we went out there. In the second instance, when my year with the tribe got commissioned, which off the success of Hunters of the South Seas, it was so remote we could have no recce. So we went in cold and we just took food with us and hoped for the best, which... Sounds very romantic, but in hindsight, it was a big mistake. Risky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You could a, end up starved. Yeah, or you 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 end up in a situation where you're constantly trace, chasing your tail, and then the story's not quite right. My year with the tribe became the story almost of like a. Do you know, you know the film Apocalypse Now? Vaguely, it's Francis Ford Coppola. I think his name, the director, and Apocalypse Now is like kind of like this chaotic vietnam film um where everything kind of goes wrong around them but the, the the famous thing about apocalypse now was everything went wrong for the for the actual filmmakers as well there was um great civil unrest all of the characters were falling out the actors were falling out with each other marlon brando turned up incredibly overweight hadn't learned his script it was you know the the, the kind of famous monologue he gives in it is totally unscripted it's extraordinary and they actually made this documentary called um a filmmaker's apocalypse, which was a kind of behind the scenes of how yeah. they made Apocalypse Now. And that director, even though he'd made some extraordinary films, never really recovered from it. And that was sort of the way it went down with My Year with the Tribe. Yeah. Like we, you know, we we went out there, we'd been sent out by the BBC because they'd filmed this sequence of of Korowai tribes, people living in 40 metre high treehouses 
I can speak the languages and I've spent a lot of time in Papua. As soon as I turned up, I was like, this isn't legit. Like, this has been faked. Why would they live in a 40 meter high treehouse in the middle of a rainforest where the weather can turn like that? And then you're stuck at 40 meters high. Yeah. In a, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. And then you speak to the local people and they're like, they just want to make the filmmakers, the people that come here, they want to make it look spectacular. And that's what we get paid to do. So we'll just build them for you. Where do you want your treehouse? Yeah. Like, we can't do that. As, as regards um, planning, and you were saying, you know, you, you had to take, well, you, you couldn't really plan with food and that. I, I guess then you don't work as good as you should then because you're concentrating too much on surviving of food than actually doing the, the programme. Yeah, this was it. So what ended up happening was we had we had loads of food with us, but, you know, we turned up in this village. Everything kind of went wrong straight away because what we'd gone to film wasn't real. So then we were like, well, what is real? And then basically, you know, it all just became about the kind of, stuff that we brought in with us so like we had we had loads of food with us for like you know a month in the forest but obviously you've turned up in a village with all of this food you're then not really kind of filming the same way that other people have filmed there and you've got yeah. all of this stuff and you just you know we ended up with like 50 people in our team and we're just constantly trying to keep everybody happy you know meanwhile we're kind of losing like food all the time because we're constantly feeding people we're not re- so it just became about stressful eh? yeah it just and just became like a circus around our production and we couldn't really work you know we were you know it wasn't really until we kind of found hope and halap and then i ended up staying with them on my own and and the crew literally just took everything away that it got easier i'm actually working without food i'm pretty good you know i, I if it's not for a long period of time i can do it you know yeah. um you, you can cope you'd be really surprised like how much physical oh. hardship you can put the body through. You know, in 2012, I made a terrible error. Like I, I thought me and my best friend and I, we, we took these pack rafts into this rainforest. We came to a village in a jungle clearing. I was looking for this intertribal trade route that linked that village with another village that was, you know, a few hundred miles away from where we were uh, down this like big Amazonian-esque river, you know, yeah. And they said, no one's ever been down that river. Don't go down there. And I was, I was just like, yeah, but, but the geography, it just makes sense, you know, from the, from the satellite maps and the maps I'd seen. Should have listened to the people. But there'd been times in the past where I hadn't listened to a village and had gone down and found an intertribal trade route. It'd been brilliant. That time it didn't work out. We ended up doing a month without food, you know, in a 400 square mile forest. Like we had effectively starvation rations. At one point we ran out of water. You know, I remember we were having to drink water out of these pitcher plants, you know, these... You see them in the garden centres and stuff. These these um, cannibalistic plants that melt insects in their stomach acids, and we were having to like drink the thin layer of water that was resting on top of them to, you know. And th- oh, mate, I mean, it's, not having enough food is really bad, but not having enough to drink drives you crazy. Like mm. actually, you lose your mind, you know, and and you start doing really stupid, dangerous things. So as long as you've got a supply of water and you know that. You know, you might only be looking at one or, you know, when I was doing the Coralway film, I knew where the crew were. It would only take me a day to walk to them if I desperately needed to. And as long as I had water, I knew I could go a week or a week or two weeks without food. So I, I did. The, the Coralway is, that's the one with my year with the tripe. That's or, right. Or, right. Yeah. You know, the the one you, hunters of the, of the uh, South Seas, that's Polynesia, you said, wasn't it? 
Um, it was, well, it was mostly, so it was Indonesia and then we were in sort of like outlaying islands in Papua New Guinea. So it was just south of Polynesia, really. Tell me about the sailors, the navigation. Oh, mate. Oh, we talked about this last yeah. time. Oh, amazing. This was the one that got away, Kerry, to be honest. Um, so in the original pitching document, oh, you asked me earlier about how, how it works with pitching. I never answered that question. Basically what happens is you sit down with your friends in your production company you come up with an idea, you write what you think it's going to look like on a page and then you send it to a commissioner and they decide whether to give you the money. Now, obviously, with the BBC, incredible, really. They will then have to make a decision over a substantial amount of money. They give you the money and you go off and make it over the course of a year with our programmes and they just hope that you come back with something at the end of it. So in the original document, we were going to go and, and live with the Celestial Navigators in Micronesia and... Um, they were incredible men. I mean, like just extraordinary people. You know that that they were a a throwback to when the first people that populated that part of the South Pacific. You know how they did it. All of these tens of thousands of years ago. You know, you talk about human journeys, and everyone thinks about Captain Cook and these great, you know, white explorers. It's got nothing on these people. You know, the original kind of. So how did South they know Americans, where to go? They, they, well, they didn't know. The initial people that, that they, we believe set sail from Peru in the South Pacific to try and end up populating, you know, the, the great South Pacific islands, you know, your Hawaii's, you know, your Micronesia, all those kind of like throw a handful of sugar across a map islands, basically. Mm -hmm. They didn't know where to go. We don't know why they were driven from there, the lands they were on, probably warfare, but they just headed over the horizon and hope for the best. And some of them must have been successful. But then over the over the years, presumably, they started developing skills and became the greatest seafarers ever. The Lapita are the ones to look up and you know, have these incredible, almost crab-claw-shaped sails. And um, through the generations, the oral traditions, people were taught how to do it. And some of the things that they would do, you know, they'd obviously be able to kind of navigate using seabirds. They'd navigate using stars. Um, they judge distance literally by using their fingers to judge distance between stars and where the stars were angled on the water. There are other things that they would do as well. They'd be able to tell where land was by the different peaks and troughs in the waves around them, even when there's no land anywhere to be seen. They'd also um, they'd also stand in their canoes and look at the way that the water was puddling in the bottom of the canoe and being able to tell where the land was based on the most minute imperceptible to us depressions in the water puddle that's gathered in the bottom of the canoe and then yeah. some of them said that they could feel it in their balls <laughs> and, and that's what they do you know so i mean it, yeah. absolutely extraordinary people you know? were they the ones that was, which were wheeling you said no so that they were another traditional community so they are the only whaling community to be certified as sustainable by the international whaling commission they live on a on a infertile volcanic island um in a village called lamalira and effectively you know the people that sort of first went out there they didn't really have a lot going for them it was very hard to grow things on that slope but what they did have going for them is this mile deep volcanic trench that sits right in front of that volcano and this place is like a super highway for marine beasts I have honestly never seen anything like it. I mean, I've been out in the Celtic deeps and they are very rich right now, but they can't hold a candle to this place. The time that I spent there, you know, you would see manta rays, you would see yellowfin tuna, you would see 
I saw a blue whale came up next to the boat that we were in. Um, sharks, like so many sharks. And um, the way that the Lamellerian society work, they have these wooden boats and they have someone called the Lamafar. The Lamafar is the name of the chief harpooner. They spent years of their life getting the skills to do this one job. And their main quarry is sperm whales. 25 tonnes, 12 metres long. Toothed whale. They never hunted the baleen whale, which was the ones with the gill rakers, you know. They believed that their um, that they were their ancestors. Um, sorry, no, they believed that their ancestors had travelled on their backs to, to populate the islands. But the sperm whales were, were their quarry, and they would wait until the sperm whale had come up to the surface to breathe, and the lamafar would leap off the boat with a spear in his hand, plunge the harpoon head into the back of the sperm whale, that harpoon head would then detach and there was a thick rope that was tied from the harpoon head to the boat you actually sat on. And that was it, man. You were off. And you were the first people to, to film that or something, you said, were you? Yeah, so um, another another production had filmed it on a long lens, um, but I was the first person to film for television from the shoulder of the Lamafar. Wow. And I remember, you know, we'd been waiting for a hunt to happen. And, you, you know, sometimes it can go months and it never happens. And they have a very, they have strict rules, they have strict season. You know, they, they have many, many spiritual beliefs around this animal. You know, if you've had a bad dream, you can't go out. If you've had an argument with your wife, you can't go out. Um, really? Can't, can't fish on a Sunday. Um, you know, and there was one Sunday when the sperm whales came in and everyone was sort of stood there. On the- and then we were actually filming a sequence. It was the only time we ever left the village. We went to the local market where they were trading in um, sperm whale uh, oil. The heads, sperm whales, a third of the sperm whale is a head and it's filled with oil. And they were trading in the oil, which one of the local villages was using for cooking oil to get the vegetables and things that they needed to survive. When the shout went up and they're like, Baleo, 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 which is a traditional shout for whale. And I remember just thinking, we're not even in the village. You know, it was the wife of the person that I'd been staying with that that, that was made, from the shore you could do made the call. No, they rang her on a mobile mate. Oh. <laughs> yeah. They had a mobile phone what? mask there. How would you charge your phone in a place like that then? Well there they actually had um they actually had a bit of electricity. They've done pretty well. Um All right. through and they the had sperm, phone signal as well. Through the sperm whale. Uh yeah they did have a they did have a phone signal. It's mad. You know, yeah. kids had gone to university off the back of what the Lamafars had achieved. Right. The sperm whale was worth quite a lot of money. The thing at the time that was worth the most money, which was which has now since been outlawed, um, was the gill rakers of a manta ray. They would they would take the gill rakers out, and um, in the Chinese traditional medicine trade, they believed that the gill raker of a manta ray had this medicinal detoxifying property, and they'd mix it into tea, and they were making a lot of money trading these on the black market back to the big fish markets in Hong Kong. And that got stopped. I mean, God knows how it continued for as long as it had because the manta rays an endangered species. And it was awful. There was one day they, they killed like 17 manta rays and some of them were like five metres from tip to tip, you know. Oh but anyway, um, the call went up. Me, my mate, the director, we sprinted down the hill. We jumped in front of what turned out to be a school bus. We were like, whatever vehicle it is, we're just going to have to get them to take us. Gave the guy a lump of money, took us down there, and there was one boat left. Everyone else had already left because they're not going to wait for us. Who cares about the film crew? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, we we pay everyone that we work with, but like, no one's paying enough for a spam whale. One boat left, managed to jump on it. We 
chug out into the trench. So you, you go out under a motor, but then as soon as you're in the battlefield, you're not allowed to use a motor anymore. Everything has to be done by hand, and you're all under all. As soon as we got out into the into the trench, I'm not joking, it was 360 degrees of blood, blood everywhere. One of the boats had been smashed into matchsticks. There was people in the water. People die all the time. So how, how, how well, the, the whale actually tows the boat? Is yeah. that, is that powerful is it and then oh, they just yeah well the sperm whale is one of the most intelligent cetacean mammals on on the planet they will attack the boat if one of their members if happens, one of their members is, is being attacked then another one will come along and smash it to bits they grieve when 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 the, it's it's really heartbreaking you know it's it's so the, this boat which was smashed he actually or they actually speared the whale and the whale actually turned then and smashed it, the boats to pieces right yeah. that's why there was so much blood there yeah, because the whale... Imagine had, swimming in that. The, oh, mate. Well, the whale had been speared, so it was pumping out blood, and then the whale had smashed the boat to bits, and everyone's shouting, and then literally the, the blood drains from my director's face. The director and the cameraman turned to each other, and they were just like, we've got kids. We need to get off the boat. And that was it. I was left on my own with a handicap. This was before I had kids. I wouldn't do it now. And wow. And I was just... It was weird. You had to do it, didn't you? Yeah, had but it was it. just sort of... I was just in it. Do you know what I mean? I was like, oh, okay... And then, and then they went, and then I was on my own, and, and they were pulling under the oars. And then another whale breached, and a boat next to us got the harpoon head in, and it was towing them around. And, and you can see in the film, like, this boat goes shooting, big boat as well, just shooting past. You know, they used to call it the Nantucket sleigh ride in, in, uh, in Northern America when they used to do it by hand. And then I think the harpoon head detached, so the whale was... No, that wasn't what happened. They came back. It looked like their boat was going to get dragged under the sea. Our boat were like, we've got to assist. We'll get less of the meat, but we need to get another harpoon head in. What do you mean, get less of the meat? So the person that gets the most meat is the, lab, the lead lamifier that puts the first harpoon head in. All oh, right. That boat's the primary boat. They get the biggest share of the meat because they were the first people to get there. The second boat, the support boat, gets a lesser share of the meat. So you were in the support boat. So we were in the support boat. The support boat goes up. But then just as we were about to do the business, that harpoon head broke off. So now the whale's untethered, so it's fair game again. Our lamifier then jumps on, and then we're the primary boat. And All right. Mate, that was when the fight started, and I have never... It gives me goosebumps telling you about it, mate. <laughs> I have never experienced fear like that. And, and to be with this majestic giant animal yeah sad to, as well isn't it it's mate? incredibly sad because that would have been some age i guess as well oh yeah you know and it's covered in scars from battles with squid and you know it's got this big kind of friendly eye and yet you also know that this is the way that they survive and this is what the people have to do to survive and you're like yeah what you have to remember is that as brutal and as hard as it seems to our western sensibilities and sensitivities this is how they survive that one whale fed that entire village for a month yeah it's huge you know and every part of that animal it's used if that tradition died and don't forget as i mentioned earlier it's been certified sustainable by the international whaling commission you know they're not damaging sperm whale populations out of out of the out of the whales on earth the sperm whales doing reasonably well in that area they're not scratching the surface compared with 
what we've done to the seas in terms of trawling oh, and industrial yeah, yeah. fishing and, yeah. you know, using f- f- FEDs to get every fish, you know, big sea nets where they pick up every fish in the ocean. It's highly selective hunting that's only done in a certain time of year. And, you know, for me as well, having spent a lot of time in all of these different communities where you do see things where you're like, oh, mate, like, you know, the death of an animal that, you know, you would pay good money to a conservation charity to kind of guarantee its survival. And then you see it just get bashed on the head or like a spear through its chest. You have to remind yourself that, that if all of us lived in this generic vanilla way, there wouldn't be anything that separates us as societies. You know, I'm not, I'm not, that's not, that's not. These whales wouldn't attack an individual after, I don't suppose. It's just that his way, I I bet it would look fantastic on film if we'd have seen the whale attack the boat. Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. I mean, we got there for the aftermath, but I mean, loads of people. There wasn't a, uh, I mean, when that whale, I mean, jumping ahead now, but when that whale eventually did succumb, and it it was brutal, it was brutal. You know, by the end, they're throwing everything at it. And then I remember the kind of last act, this guy just like leapt off. And he had like a handsaw and he just hand sawed through its spinal cord. And its spinal cord is like as wide as my chest, you know, at least. And then it died. And then they brought it under tow to the beach and it was dead there on the beach and the sunset. And I could just hear people like crying and wailing, you know, the people that were the, the hunters. So they felt for the whale. They felt for the whale. They had deep respect for the animal. But they were also grieving in that moment for all of their brothers and family members that had died at sea. You know, I was there on the boat. And obviously, I'd never been in that situation before. I had no health and safety whaling handbook. And where I was sat, because I was behind the Lamafar's shoulders, after he jumped out, all of the ropes, all of like the primary, secondary, you know, first, second, third, fourth spearheads, they're all coiled up on the floor around you. And as the spearheads are being like clunked onto the onto the spears, the ropes are running out as the animal runs. And I got caught up in the rope, like two ropes run up at once and they both like tightened around my waist, like side by side running parallel. Jeez. And I had someone grab me by the back of the collar and just literally wrench me back into the back of the boat. They hadn't done that. You know, one of the things that, that, that happens often is people get tangled up in the rope, you get a little loop mm. around your ankle you're yeah. going down like hundreds of meters under the water. You're instantly wow. going to drown. You know, it's not just being attacked by the whale and the whale smashing up your boat. You know, when it comes up, I mean, the tail, it towers above you. You know, we're, we're talking like it's a whale's tail. It's blocking out the sun. It's like I wouldn't even guess how many meters across it was. And it came up next to my head and just whoosh on the water, you know, dove down. And then, like, the head would come up, you'd see its teeth, and then the blowhole would blow, and it was just full of blood. You're just, you're just, you're being hit with buckets of blood, and it's ramming into the side of your boat anyway, and it's it's in distress, and the whole time you're putting more and more spearheads in it and dragging it closer that, and closer that, to your boat. That could give you some sort of trauma, couldn't it? Serious trauma, like. So, it can give you trauma, and it, it did give me trauma, you know, um... This, I was 30 years old when that had happened. I'd started working in remote expeditions at 
23 and I then after that I, I didn't really have any sort of break we made a series on the River Taff total gear change and then I went and did my year with the tribe my year with the tribe climax we never ever squared away our problems with the local village um that I mentioned earlier and and it, and it climaxed with us being robbed at bow and arrow point and taken hostage and a very violent altercation but other things happened in that series as well you know with, there was the whale hunt yes but there was also that survival retreat through the forest i mentioned before i got cerebral malaria when i was on a solo expedition in sierra leone and liberia and had to crawl out the forest that time so um, why did you have to retreat yeah well what went wrong was i got it wrong i thought i was an intertribal trade route and then i realized i wasn't and I'd, i descended this white water river that emptied out into this massive river that we was impassable it was full of cataracts that were like oh man it was like you'd see these rocks the size of a car and the waves were going over them like i've got a photograph of my mate and it's literally like 14 foot in the air and we couldn't get our rafts through that we would have died nobody had been through that in, in human history what we'd been told was right and i knew at that point we had to go back the way we'd come but you can't just go back up a whitewater river so we had to you know at the time there wasn't particularly good satellite mapping technology but we had a gps bearing for the last point of contact we'd had with people this village that told us not to go there and with nothing else that we could do so, so we um we took a bearing to where that village was with our compass and we just literally walked in a straight line for, for uh two and a half weeks until we got out of the forest you know so that was the retreat out of that one and you know we almost starved to death doing that and you know that was really hardcore and these things affect you you know they do affect you you know and, and do you find that it affects you not then it's when you come back yeah because you, you you're sort of in it at the time you know and i think you know when you say take the whale hunt for example when you watch it you know i'll say oh this is really terrifying and stuff but like i'm also really properly doing my job i'm getting all the shots i'm hoovering all the gvs yeah. i'm doing my pieces to camera i'm interviewing the people in the boat whilst this chaotic scene that I could be killed. And I remember just thinking, like, how will I save the camera if this whale smashes this boat to bits? And I had, like, a dry bag in between my knees. And I was like, I'll just plunge it in there as the boat tips up in the air and stick it in there and hopefully try and get the toggle seal before the boat goes under. Mad. Like, mad that I'm thinking about that. And that, I now know, is the hallmark of post-traumatic stress, stress disorder, PTSD. You become very calm in traumatic in traumatic yeah. uh, moments and you you're very rational you're very capable but then when you come home it, it crawls out of the system in in bizarre bizarre ways you know like you know i can remember like driving down the road and there was just like a sandbag um by the side of the road and my mind just saw a body like and i can remember you know i could have seen this terrible road traffic accident in papua in 2009 you know where this guy just literally had his head smashed open right in front of us um and then i remember being in i remember being in tesco's in canton i used to live in canton in cardiff and and i was just oh mate i just i just remember being stood with like a basket a shopping basket in my hand and i was looking at the cucumbers and they just like turned into snakes like in front of me uh, or you'll be like on a nice walk in the woods with your wife and you'll feel like a leaf brush on your ankle and you'll think it's a giant spider or you know just things like this and then you become you start to get the nightmares you start to 
and they become night terrors, you start to get irritable. You know, you're not yourself. You start to you start to act irrationally. And that and it was after my you were deprived that I knew I had a problem. You know, I, I knew that something wasn't right. And I'd sort of denied it and and You got to I, see somebody then, did you? Yeah, I did. I did. And I was very lucky actually. The production company I worked for had identified I think that something wasn't right and they sort of took the first steps. I don't think I would have done it and they found a really good trauma psychologist. It's a brave thing to do to accept you've got an issue like any, I suppose, like you've got to get it fixed. Listen, if anyone's listening to this, this is what I'd say and you know, we we all talk about mental health is a real buzzword now. It wasn't back then, but it certainly is now. But that doesn't mean it make it easy. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make you go and get out. It doesn't make you talk to somebody. But I will tell you this right now from my personal experience. There is nothing scarier than the day you have to go to the door of the psychologist or the counsellor or tell the doctor that you've got a problem. But as soon as you have done that and you're on the pathway to getting better and to recovering, everything, everything is so much easier. So, you know, I went and saw this psychologist. She died, diagnosed with PTSD. I started on antidepressants. I was given sleeping pills as well to help me through. I knocked them on the head because they were an absolute nightmare. And um, I started to fish every day. I, I, I went back to the water. I went back to the water that I knew that I felt safest in. And for me, that was the city centre of the River Taff. Um, long trotting for grayling, brown trout in the seasons, and then fishing a little pond in Bridge End. You know, my safe places, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, there's an old there's an old quote. Um, I put it in my book, but when I wrote my book, um, The Old Man in the Sand Deal, I wrote it when I was filming my year with the tribe, and I touch on it in there. But I don't go far enough because I wasn't ready to admit that I was in trouble in that, that the darkness was consuming me, you know. But I did have this quote in there. And it's from Ted Hughes. And it says, uh, when you're staring at a float, a fishing float, your whole being rests on the float. And that's transferable to fly fishing when you're watching a dry fly on the surface, surface of the water, you know, or you're feeling a line. Or you're rowing your way across a lock in search of a ferox trout, you know, and you you are so in it, and you know now immersed kind of in it, and you massively, you know, yeah. and, and, and you know now kind of meditation, mindfulness, these are all on trend topics. But as anglers, we already have the key, in my opinion, to the greatest mindful art of man's creation, which is to fish. Because when you're there and you're fishing, it was the only time. And I wouldn't say I felt happy when I was fishing. I wouldn't go, I was in that bad a way. It's helped. But I wasn't thinking about it. And then from that baseline, to, to be able to walk away and be like, I didn't think about it for an hour. Oh, mate. It's just like a light just opens up in front of you and you start to believe you're going to get better. And then I did. I got better. Yeah. It took a while, but I got better. Yeah. So it was immensely grateful to fishing, really. Yeah. always have always have been and always will be and and you know and and since then i kind of have spoken a lot about it and um you know i ended up making a piece with the one show with a brilliant psychologist that works with combat veterans with ptsd and he said as as part of his uh, studies phd at the time he went through sort of every sport you can think of you know from um you know archery was one of them i think um i think they might have done hawking as well you know with the 
you know, the Harris Hawk on the arm sort of thing, but it was like fishing was the one that got me the best results, always got me the best results out of combat veterans. Um, it oh, takes no. you into a different world. You're just going into another world where there's water and it, it just you, you just get lost. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, sometimes when I think about kind of like the proportion of our body that is, that is made up of water, whether there's something about being yeah. in water that allows us to make some sort of, you know, connection, connection that, that perhaps other species can't make, you know. Um you know, a lot. And looking back as well, I mean, I've, I've never really considered this. I'm sort of thinking on the fly, really. But kind of when you look at look back at series like I made, like Hunters of the South Seas, where you're living with people that live in live in and by water, it makes you realise that ancient human history is steeped in man's engagement in water. You know, throughout, it's not just the kind of getting back to the primal instinct of hunting and gathering and fishing. Yeah. It's also about being waterside. When we when we you know, in the, in the kind of like the great ice ages when the interior of the world was uninhabitable because there's literally walls of ice, we made our way and progressed around the planet by hand railing the oceans. Those were the only places and pathways we could go. Yeah. When you're in the jungle, you look for rivers. Predominantly, my expeditions have taken place either riverside or when I brought pack rafts with me, I've inflated it and gone down the river because they're the natural breaks in the forest. Yeah. So, so it's no great surprise that we feel this release, that we feel this sense of sanctuary when we're in a river, because they literally were sanctuaries to us for 99.99% yeah. of the time. You yeah. know, and you just look as well, you know, like you've got a fish tank upstairs. I've got three fish yeah. tanks in my house. I've got a pond. I need three to clean ponds. mine. You do need to clean yours, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, if we can't be by water, we bring water into our house. Yeah. Why is that? There is yeah. something that is more than just catching fish. It's definitely deeply yeah, therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. I've just remembered... Uh, Two very quick stories, actually. So one one was from the Go Fish series that we filmed with BBC Wales, and I was on a shark fishing sh- shoot, uh, blue sharks, and it was the final shoot, and it was the final fish. It was like the one, you know, the the statement fish, basically. And, and we had like, I don't know, let's say half a dozen rods on the go, and we had this one camera, and it was called like Go Fish Cam. It was like a, it was like a, bespoke fishing camera and you could it had like a clip on it that you could set as like a running running rig and send it down your line and we sent it down the line closest to the boat and that was the one that went off and it had something like an hour and a half battery life and this shark took it within the first 45 minutes of us lowering this camera down and i can just remember we were like that's the camera rod you know, so you imagine we've got this, we've got this camera on that bait under the water, and a shark's just taking the bait. I mean, that's you know, we just like oh, we've got wow. it, we've got it. We're high fiving, we bring it, we get the shark on board, get the camera. The camera's covered in bite marks, but it still works. The lens is good. We get the we get the um, the SD card out, slam it into the computer. Literally, we are like. Here oh, we go, guys. It's, oh, up, mate, it's like, put the beers on ice. We, you know, this is going to be the greatest shot. And we, 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 we click play. The lighting is perfect. The bait, this mackerel flapper, is in the middle of the screen. A pod of dolphins swims past the mackerel flapper. We're like, oh, my goodness me. This, you know, pinprick focus. We're like, this is amazing. 20 minutes in, the battery dies. Oh, no. And you're like, 
And it was hour and what? a half you take. Yeah, you, you like didn't know. Hour and a half guaranteed battery, brand new camera, oh. and they give it, and we just just been sold a dud battery. And you're like, that's devastating. You know, when you're making television, things like that can make or break. You know, you get a shot like that, especially like. You know, so inverted commas, natural history filming. I know, obviously, we're fishing. You know, but like, you know what it's like. Like, you know, you can go. You're trying to trying to capture an angling moment on film is really hard. And when you have it there, and everything comes together, the the, the gods do you a favor, and then you're like, yeah, no, the batteries died. You're like, no, put the beer back in the fridge. Oh, Kerry, mate, we were absolutely <laughs> gutted. But the but the one thing that happened that was incredibly lucky, the last film I made which is still on BBC iPlayer. It's called Last Chance to Save, and it's about endangered buildings in Wales. And we were filming one of the old uh, Baptist chapels in Mountain Ash, um, in the valleys. And we had a, um, a steady cam rig. So basically it's like a, a high-end digital SLR, which has been rigged on this arm that allows you to make get these incredibly beautiful sweeping shots whether you're following the presenter or sweeping along in this case along a um you know a beautiful welsh baptist chapel uh foundry or set of pews you know you get these epic sweeping yeah. shots that back in the day you'd have to get like a professional jib operator in and spend like 1500 quid a day getting this shot and literally get one shot and it'd take them all day to set the jib arm up now you can buy this very expensive kit but it gives you that shot so anyway we'd gone and done that shot we were rapping at the end of the day. The cameraman has put the whole kit down in the street in Mountain Ash, and then we've thrown the drone up in the sky to get more coverage. Another shot of me walking down the road and going into the church. Wicked, thumbs up, everyone's done. Got the drone out of the sky, packed up, jumped in the car. We left the rig in the middle of the pavement in Mountain Ash. The whole the whole rig, so the, the steady cam rig with the digital SR, was stood up in the middle of the pavement literally in the middle of a pedestrian pavement and we just drove off and um, when did you notice oh once we got home I got a panic phone call from the director and he's like have you got the steadicam and I'm like no and you just know don't you you know when you get that kind of feeling of unreality where you're like no we can't have done but you know you know you did you know it's one of those where everyone sort of thinks they've taken you know the other person's got responsibility so my mate, my mate, like obviously, like we started like bombarding like local Facebook groups, ringing everyone we knew in the area. My mate jumped in the car and drove straight back up there. It's gone, and um, he uh, he started door knocking. And the first door he knocked on, woman opens the door and goes, uh, "Are you here for the camera?" <laughs> <laughs> and they actually had CCTV outside their house. And they and the, the the fella sent me the CCTV, CCTV footage. I've never seen anything like it. The camera is is upright on the rig, mounted in the middle of the pavement, and people are just walking past. And you can see them looking at it. And I think because it was upright in the pavement, no one touched it because they they must think that someone's watching around. Like yeah, it's almost like a you know like a copper you know police installation or whether like someone's doing some remote surveying or I, whatever. I think if you knocked my door and he would have said, "Have you got the camera?" I'd have said, "Maybe." Yeah, what have you got for me, mate? <laughs> so, um, so, uh, but the guy, I mean, just pure chance. He, um, he was a, oh. he was a very good amateur cameraman, and he was like, I knew what it was, so I brought it inside. So he gave it back to my mate. My mate's ringing me from the local corner shop whilst he's trying to get them a nice bottle of fizz. Right? He's telling me the sorry. So it was the man that gave him the camera. He's telling me the story. <laughs> gets a tap on the shoulder. His wife is in the queue and goes, "Oh, was it you? You just picked up the camera?" And he's like, "Oh my goodness me, thank wow. you so much." Oh, honestly. The chances are that. Oh, mate. 
but you know people are good people like yes you know there's there's a good chance it's going to get nicked but like in all honesty you know if you haven't dropped it into the lock or like you know smashed it up on a whale hunt or you know lost it to the teeth of a shark or something like that you assume it's going to be nicked but actually i do genuinely believe that there are more more good people out there than bad and and um yeah i mean still the chances of you not getting if someone had just brushed past it and knocked it over it would have smashed yeah, it i know that was a miracle a gust of wind in the valleys come on Jesus. didn't happen and it didn't rain and it didn't rain exactly <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming up will we'll have to sort the day out soon and fish together i'd love that kerry thank you so much cheers will if you've enjoyed this podcast and want to listen to more please consider becoming a patreon where you will get over 90 past episodes and weekly podcasts plus photography and exclusive content to join visit patreon.com forward slash casting with kerry jones or see the link on my website castingwithkerryjones.com well that's all for now tight lines and don't strike too soon <laughs>